Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Actung, Actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. We've got plenty to talk about, John. We do. We never run out of things to talk about. I mean, I'll <laughs> jabber forever, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and fresh back from We Have Ways Fest. Oh, that was so much fun. God, I had a blast. I mean, it is amazing how nice everyone is, isn't it? I, I know. Mean, everyone's just everyone's just so mad for it, and and they just love it, and they're so grateful that you're there, and you've kind of laid it on. And I mean, did you have lots of nice chats with people? I did. I mean, that I was going to say, Jim, that that's probably the thing I like the most about the whole festival. Is everybody is so nice. I get to to just hang out and have great conversations with people about World War II. I mean, <laughs> what's not to like about that, right? And um, and also, it's kind of cool to to just put faces with whomever is listening to us on the, on the podcast. I mean, that, that so it personalizes it. And also, the other great thing about it, it's an opportunity to hang out with a lot of our colleagues, uh, you know, especially... I mean, coming coming from the U.S., I don't get to see a lot of our British colleagues or Australian, German, whatever. It's a great opportunity to just kind of hang out because I I'm, I, I always come away just in awe of how brilliant uh, these folks are. I kind of feel yeah, like, yeah. what am I doing? Well, here? you 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 and me the same. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm keen next year to get some some of our German colleagues back again. You know, Christoph Berg and Co. and some other people from the continent. I think it'd be great to get absolutely. Them There's a really interesting um, German academic called Magnus Paul. He's done a lot of work on the Faustenjäger at, at Monte Cassino. He's actually pretty down on them, to be honest. Oh, really? Kind of yeah, so? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he just thinks they've been kind of overinflated. It was all part of a kind of sort of wartime Nazi PR rather than mm. actually justifying. His argument basically is that they're not as elite as everyone makes out. Well, I mean, it's it does just... seem terrifically wasteful to, to train these guys up. And then they're basically used as light infantry on the front line, late in the war, at least. I mean, post-Crete. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, we thought today, John, we'd talk about um, about the 7th uh, Infantry Regiment, of which you're the official historian, is that right? I am, yeah. And I have been for 20-some-odd years. In fact, 23 years I've been working with the 7th Infantry Regiment. And it, it's, uh, it was really, Jim, it was uh, absolutely, it's an incredible honor, but one of the highlights of my career getting mixed up with the 7th Infantry Regiment. I don't know if you want to hear the whole backstory because it's yeah, really Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did it come about? So it comes about, this is, this is again, this is like 23 years ago, so wow. a long time ago. And um, uh, my wife Nancy and I were at dinner one night at an, at an Italian restaurant in St. Louis where I live. Uh, we have a lot of great Italian restaurants. And she just happened to ask me, she said, has any um, like unit, any infantry unit would have been in all of America's wars, like from the beginning to now? And I was like, gosh, that is a really interesting question. Hmm. So I, um, I, I stayed up like half the night that night. Uh, poking around and I found that, well, none can trace it 
directly to the revolution because the, the army is basically phased out after independence, really from the early 19th century on. 1812. Um, yeah, I mean, especially the War of eighteen twelve. Um, there are there are a few, but really, the Seventh Infantry Regiment is is the one that can trace from eighteen twelve through now, and has been in all of the wars in between. Because most of like the the really old infantry regiments of the U.S. Army either sat out Korea or Vietnam. Uh, by contrast, the Seventh was in both, and so oh. it was so intriguing to me that I ended up immersing myself with it and decided to, to write a history of the regiment, which in turn led me to really become immersed in um, the regimental association with veterans from World War II through a- active duty soldiers, wow. which in turn led to uh, me doing like uh, like after action interviews with um, uh, guys who had been in the, the Iraq War, huh. uh, using like the martial techniques and as much as mm. I could, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it was. Uh, it led to two volumes, ultimately, about the history of the regiment, one of which uh, starts in 1812 and goes through World War II, the other Korea through Iraq. Um, right. And then in a book called Grunts, I, I added to it, you know, uh, of a subsequent tour of duty. So it's just, um, it really kind of changed my life on some levels. And I, I always consider myself to be an, a kind of honorary cotton baler. That's their their nickname. Uh, and the reason is they're said to have fought from behind cotton bales at the Battle of New Orleans. Now, I found that probably wasn't true because cotton balers could be flammable um, mm-hmm. cotton bales. So you, you really didn't necessarily want to be close to, to cotton. But it's possible, I think, that with the rain um, and the mud that you could have embedded cotton in, in muddy ramparts right. and whatnot. So, you know, it sticks to this day and they, they take a cotton bale wherever they go. And, wh- and why... <laughs> Why is it the seventh that's done this and not some of the other that stayed other uh, active? You mean, or yeah, like, yeah. What, um, what is it about the seventh? I mean, is there a first infantry regiment? I don't know whether there is. There is, there is. Uh, but but the, it's it's funny because the first has not always been. Uh, I mean, the first doesn't have as much of a lineage as the seventh. Seventh has more battle streamers than any other regiment. It has mm. the second and most Medal of Honor recipients. I mean, it is a go-to unit, um, and I think the reason is because. You know, in the 19th century, this country really didn't maintain much of, a, of an army. And so yep. you, you kind of hung your hat on a few uh, hardcore regiments. The 3rd Infantry is another example. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, you're going to have some some incredible units like the 16th, for instance, which is, of course, part of the Big Red One. And yep. now that's, you know, uh, like mid-19th century on. So what's different about the 7th is that it has that kind of longer lineage, and especially the Battle of New Orleans, which, of course, is where it forms its identity. Um, so once the 20th century comes around, uh, when the army is modernizing, creating divisions, they take some of those kind of traditional regiments and now they give them that divisional identity, right. uh, you know, so the seventh really has a, a kind of a tie with the third infantry division or rock and right. Marne from world war one on. But I should point out the seventh infantry RL elements of it have served with other divisions too, confusingly enough, um, so uh, examples I would give you is uh, the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. There's one battalion of the 7th that's part of that in Vietnam. Um, whereas the rest of the, it, this is so confusing, but this is so army. Um, whereas the rest of the regiment was in Germany with the 3rd ID while Vietnam is going on. So, huh. um, and then later during the Gulf War, um, two battalions of the 7th were part of the 1st Armored Division in the famous uh, uh, Medina Ridge and and sort of that hook, the big armored hook, and then two were part of the twenty fourth division, uh, which was a major mechanized division. And but eventually, you're going to see seventh go back home with the third ID where it remains today. So, um, yeah, it's just like everywhere. And does it have a kind of sort of geographical hub within the U.S. or is it from all over? 
it's from all over and at any given time, you know, you name a year, it'll be stationed in a different place. Uh, right. So like Fort Gibson in Oklahoma, if this is the 1830s and man, was that was a godforsaken place. Um, by contrast, Vancouver Barracks was a wonderful place to be on the eve of World War II. Um, nowadays, it's based at Fort Stewart, which is about 40 minutes south of Savannah. Um, and the, the, the 7th Infantry Regiment has been there for a good bit of the last couple of decades. Uh, but of course, there's, you know, during the Cold War era, it's in Germany. Um, so it's uh, at Aschaffenburg and, and some right. of the other main barracks in Germany. So it's a regular army unit that goes wherever it is supposed to, according to, to whatever is going on with the country at any given time. Um, sure. So it doesn't really have a kind of tie to geography the way a National Guard unit would. It's it's regulars, which makes it unique and distinctive in terms of its history. It doesn't have like a state lineage or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're there in Sicily. Um, I can't remember. If they're, are they part of two corps? I can't remember. In Tunisia? Um, they are, well, I guess if Third ID is part of... Is it part of two core and, or does it go on its own once it's, because they're it, they're part of the whole Palermo push? Does that make are they, are they under the control of, of Bradley's two core at that point? I've never even. I just remember were they in Tunisia? I just can't remember. That was a ninth. Well, wasn't no, it? the first and so they first armored. I think we're in Tunisia. They're not they? in Tunisia. So what happens here? And I, I think this is an overlooked part of World War II as well. They lead the way into Fidela during Operation Torch and the yes. and uh, Casablanca. They're the ones who basically yeah, 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 take Casablanca. Um, but then they and the rest of the Third ID are going to be baby babysitting Spanish um, Morocco. Because there's a concern in the aftermath of Torch that uh, Spain is going to get into the war and that whole right. flank will be exposed through Gibraltar and whatnot. Um, so the third ID kind of has to babysit that area while the rest of our assets are over in Tunisia. Um, and that's when Truscott famously takes the opportunity to train them up so hard with the Truscott trot and, and all of that. So the 7th Infantry is, is a huge part of that. They're really, I would argue, they're the core of the division. Now, my, my friends in the 15th and 30th Infantry would see it differently, uh, particularly my friend Tim Stoy, who's the historian for the 15th infantry which is an incredible unit uh that's Audie Audie Murphy, unit. Isn't it? yeah that's Audie Murphy and and I mean that is they're the sister regiment of the seventh really and so but there's a friendly rivalry um but I but I would argue really the seventh is is the core of the division whether that's World War II or now it's just the kind of go-to unit it reminds me of the 16th infantry in the big red one it's the same right. kind of dynamic without the trouble <laughs> so 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 they see action in in Sicily and they do pretty well lots and, they're, they're, and they do well, don't they? And they're, they're, they do really they're well. Head, they, they head west, and then, they, then they're off the top of the north of the island, aren't they? Yeah, so the, it's really fascinating because they, you know, lead the way in the, in the divisional assault, um, you know, at basically at Lakata. Mm -hmm. and, and then they're going to have to, once they establish that beachhead, which, by the way, was no walkover because mm -hmm. you've got some fixed defenses in their area that were and could have caused greater problems. Uh, but I think they're a very well-trained, you know, amphibious unit. Also, of it's a tricky bit of coastline there. It's a tiny port, and there's some cliffs yeah. just to the kind of west of it, and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 not. You're right. Yeah. It's not a, it's not an easy place to assault. It's not good ground to advance either. And so they're going to be pushing westward. They're that whole western flank of the Allied invasion, basically. And so the key moment for them is Agrigento. Mm -hmm. um, because they're going to take Agrigento, which obviously is the key terrain that that, that whole neighborhood. <laughs> Um, that's going to be a few days after the invasion. And then, yeah, like you said, Jim, they're going to, they're going to be pushing North for Palermo. And there's, there's a whole story behind that too, which is like, you know, it was the armor that was really supposed to lead the way into Palermo. We talked about this with Kevin Hemo recently. Mm. 
Um, you know, that's the way Patton wanted it, especially the second armored, which was yep. his one time division. Uh, but actually it's the seventh infantry regiment that is going to lead the way into Palermo. And the way this happens is you've got basically a light infantry movement over that heavy terrain, the, the you know, uh, through Corleone and, you know, all these small yeah, mountain yeah, towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where the Trusca trot training pays off because yep. it's 90 some odd degrees. Um, it's hard to resupply. I mean, it's it's a tough go, even also, without the Also, the western half of Sicily is it's it's a brutal landscape. I mean, high summer, it's incredibly bleached. You've got all these hills, but but you know, when you're on the top of the hill, you can see forever. You know, you can see all across the next valley and to the valley beyond. You know, so it's 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 hilly, but it's not close country. It's 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 sort of open, and you have these these hilltop towns like. Vizzini and Corleone and, and all these places. And it's just tough. It's really tough. And in high summer, boy, is it hot. Oh, I mean, my God. Trying oh to keep water. Trying to get water for to these guys is really a problem. Yeah. Um, and so this is, again, where their training pays off. The other way, too, that's so interesting to me, like sociologically, there's a lot of Italian-American GIs who are with the cotton balers at that point. And they're really a force multiplier because they've got ties with locals. Um, either they knew about it or didn't, you know, depending, it all happens spontaneously. Or sometimes they're like, hey, I have a cousin who lives in Corleone. Let's look for this guy, you know. And and so um, I, I really think that's one of the things that allows the regiment to move pretty quickly and the division mm. as a whole. Um, once they get to Palermo, there's this momentum. And, yep. you know, certainly the axis are, are putting their, their greatest assets to the east. I mean, we all know that. Uh, but still, Palermo is a pretty big get. And uh, and there's this funny story where, you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Heinkes, who's a fascinating character in his, in his own right, um, he's the 3rd Battalion commander at this point. He was born in Germany, actually, and uh, but, you know, raised in the U.S. And he will one day retire as a three-star general. But um, Heinkes encounters, after his lead units go into Palermo, he encounters Hobart Gay, uh, Patton's chief of staff, who wanted, mm -hmm. of course, what Patton wanted. And, and uh, he basically says to, to General Gay, he says, uh, well, we've taken Palermo. You want us to give it back? You know, <laughs> he's, there's this sort of he, he's sort of insubordinate away with this conversation. And I always thought that was funny because not only is there's this divide between the British and the Americans as to who gets what, even within the U.S. Army, we've got this divide. Of, well, yeah, the armor's yeah, yeah. going to take it. No, the infantry, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll just, uh, you know, we're always in groups, I guess, aren't we? Well, you're always in groups and there's always rivalries. And, and, and you know, and that, that leads to competitiveness and that means to kind of people trying to up their game and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing and, and then once i got palermo once that's on then it's the march across the northern part so you suddenly you got them swinging back and you've got this you've got fifth um seventh army on the top on the northern half and you've got eighth army on the southern half and and they're kind of sort of pushing up in this northeast of sicily and and the third infantry division of which obviously the seventh is part is along that northern bit. That's really the along hard the part. coast. That's the hard part of the whole campaign because Brutal. it's this narrow coast. And I mean, Jim, obviously, you know the terrain better than anybody. Um, you've got high ground on your right. You've got the sea on your left. You've got a narrow road in front of you, and you've got you're against an army that understands how to mine and booby trap like crazy, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. And then you've got all these bridges that can be knocked out by that army. Um, so the Seventh Infantry Regiment isn't um, isn't the regiment that famously makes the outflanking amphibious invasion that that uh, Patton is going to 
basically order Tresca to do. And um, and those are usually battalion-sized operations. Uh, but the 7th is the sort of main force that's trying to move down the road to link up with those amphibious operators. Um, and that is very tough. It's extremely yep. tough going. The mines are just uh, horrifying. And well, there's an really amazing description, isn't there, by, um, by Ernie Parle. He writes about the bridging engineers rebuilding this road that's been completely blown. And within 24 hours, they've done it. It's absolutely amazing. You know, I mean, U.S. engineering is off the radar good. It is. And this is just the beginning. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something I really emphasize uh, in in my World War II class because a lot of the students I have are going to be engineers. And I think it's interesting for them that really at this point in in, uh, in Sicily, it's an engineer's war on some levels. And, and it will be as we get deeper into Italy, obviously. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, these guys are basically hanging in harnesses uh, with pneumatic drills. It's um, absolutely astonishing. I, it's a, And under artillery fire and mortar yep. fire and whatever. And the infantry is trying to provide them some security, but it's really tough. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's amazing they moved as quickly as they did. And, and you'll, you'll see the same pattern once we get into Italy. We're going to have to be building a lot of bridges, of course, a lot of river crossings. And, of course, the whole European campaign, and come to think of it, the Pacific, too, uh, is an engineer's war on that level, too. So the 7th has this partnership with the, the organic engineers of the 3rd ID that are parceled out generally in company-sized units that are working with a regiment like the 7th. And uh, that, in addition to the artillerymen, the 10th Field Artillery, which has strong ties with the 7th, you see this in the Battle of Sicily, that I think the combination of these guys working together is really, uh, really effective. Engineering just goes hand-to-hand with with any of the leading ground troops, uh, and, and especially so in Italy, where, as you point out, you know, you just so need it because of all those mountains, because all those blown bridges. I mean, it's it's such easy-peasy stuff for the Germans as they're, as they're falling back to kind of blow up a road, blow up a culvert, blow up a bridge, you know, and it, yeah, all that. I mean... You know, I've got this um, this account by this German pioneer I knew called Jupp Klein, who's an amazing guy who, who, who wrote a memoir on the back of his diary, but also I interviewed at great length. The way they just get out of the truck, lay some more mines, blow up some bridges, knock down some trees across the road, all this kind of stuff, lay some more booby traps. It's literally, they're doing that every single day. And incidentally, they're also combat troops as well. So these guys are, you know, I mean, Magnus Pahl can argue against... How good some of these, um, the Fauschenjäger, you know, you can argue that the Fauschenjäger might have been slightly overblown, but but these guys are absolutely in these engineer units, these combat engineers, and that's that's the key to it. In, in the first Fauschenjäger division, are just absolutely amazing. So, and of course, that just makes it a massive pain for the Allies as they're moving up. You know, and this is a great frustration of Italy, of course, isn't it? Is that you can't outflank it. You know, it, it's it's a it's a very easy place to fight if you've got lots of shipping, and a very difficult place to fight if you haven't. Um, and because of all those requirements elsewhere that we've talked about on earlier podcasts, you know, they have to do it the hard way. Um, and, and of course, the Seventh Infantry Regiment is absolutely part of that because the Third Infantry Division lands maybe like twenty second, twenty third of September, I think it is, at Salerno, and then is part of Fifth Army, and it's and it's it's on the way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so they've now before that they've taken Messina too. That's the other funny thing: the armor's supposed to take Messina, all this business. Yep. The Seventh Infantry is part of that. On the heels of this, of course, they're 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 hanging out in in, in uh, Sicily for about a month. Yep. Um, you know, kind of regenerating, and then yeah, this post Salerno part, they're the reinforcing outfit, and and really the big go for them is going to be at the Volturno. Um, once we're there in October, so they they don't play a big role in the taking of Naples. The Trafalgar Gap. 
Yes, exactly. And I mean, that is an enormous challenge for Fifth Army, of course. Oh, my God. And um, so, yeah, the, the seventh is actually really going to be the lead outfit in that whole fight and especially trying to cross the Volturno, which which really at that point in the war, in my opinion, is almost tantamount to like what the Rhine will be later in terms of in the mindset. Oh, my God, this is this enormous obstacle for us. We've got to find a way. What are we going to do? I think the allies learn a lot about uh, river crossings from the Volturno experience. And and uh, so it's the third ID that has the lead role. And in, in within the third ID, it's the seventh infantry. There's yeah, a ton yeah, of yeah, patrolling that goes on before that happens in October. And yeah, because uh, I think they get there around the 11th of October. And I think if I remember rightly, they, yeah. they cross it. 14th, 15th, something like that. But 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 it's amazing when you because because basically that you 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 go north of Naples to Caserta, and then the backdrop to Caserta is this big ridge of mountains. Not they're not the biggest by any stretch of the imagination, but Caserta lies in a kind of sort of plain which is sort of gently rising upwards from the coast. Then you've got these dominating mountains, and the road takes you kind of weaving up these mountains, and you go up the other side, and then the leeward side is more gentle, but it's still quite sharp and you get to the bottom and there's not much of a floodplain on the southern side so you you get to the bottom of the mountains on the on the southern side of the volturno and you're almost straight at the river but on the other side the floodplain is much more substantial but at the Triflisco gap there's these weird little hills sticking up just in the middle of the floodplain and you look at it and you just think this is an absolute horror story and particularly where the seventh infantry are and the volturno there is constantly curving it's like a snake that goes through this valley. You've got very steeply rising hills behind you, these mountains behind you, the far side of which is Caserta. You can see all the mountains in front of you and you can see the, fl- the, the floodplain. And of course, it's raining all the time. So the floodplain is just mud. So the ability to kind of move vehicles there is, is severely restricted. And it's, it's, you know, the Volturno is, it's got quite a lot of water in it at this point because it's rained very suddenly quite a lot in the last two weeks before the crossing. So it's, it's, it's not super deep, but it's significant. And it's what, you know, 50 yards wide, something like that. I mean, 60 yards. I mean, it's, it's, it's a decent stretch. I remember driving over the mountains from Caserta and looking down at this and just thinking, holy moly. I mean, this is a terrible place to, to cross. And the Triflisco Gap, the reason it's called this gap is because there's this, there's this big hill that sticks out of the floodplain. And so where the, where the river passes through between the, this big hill on the, on, on the floodplain on the northern bank and the very steep-sided hills that go up behind, behind it to the south is quite narrow. And of course, where something's narrow, that gives you very little maneuver room. And, and of course, here you've got an enemy that understands that keenly and is going to basically uh uh light sight in all their firepower on that gap and of course on any any part of the river crossing i mean if you've got all that marshy terrain it's going to be hard to move so you could be pinned down there and destroyed you're exposed trying to get across the river of course too and then you have that high ground you know on the north side of the river which provides the germans with even more advantages OPs and what have you and gun positions yeah. and all the rest of it because in those oh hills are such little villages and it's amazing how well the americans do getting across because it's not just them it's also the 34th red bulls um getting mm-hmm. across as well a little bit further up it's um and the 45th further up beyond that so it's it's um it's a major effort to get across the volcano and actually they do it in pretty good order i mean they do yeah, I mean, so it's a night crossing, and it's, of course, keenly planned. I mean, minutely planned. 
Um, your artillery coordination is very good. Uh, engineer coordination. It's basically engineers and infantry moving across the river as much as they can on boats, but also in the, in the shallower parts, they're fording it and uh, you know, ropes across kind of thing, hold on to the rope and then, and then we mark it out and then the engineers are going to build a bridge and all this is done under fire. And they're, they're really the problem you've got as you get across the river is the mines that the Germans have planted near the bank um, and the good news is some of those mines are, are in so much mud and, and silt and wetness that they're either negated or when they explode, they're not going to be very effective. Mm. Bad news is you might very well take cover uh, or blunder in the night upon one of them. And, you know, so it doesn't matter because you're right there on top of the mine and you're really going to get messed up. Um, yeah. So there's a number of guys, you know, who that happens to. But for the most part. Um, the, the leading battalion get a, gets across the river uh, without too many casualties. The crisis point is right after they cross the river. There's a German armored counterattack. Uh, and so this is light infantry across the river um, with, with nothing more than bazookas, a bazooka or two. Yeah. And, and, there, and so what, what kind of saves the day is artillery coming in on the German tanks. Uh, and the German tanks have no infantry support. So that, I think, has an impact, too, you know, and, and so the artillery kind of drives off those tanks and you're across the river. But in some ways, you know, the, the terrible fighting is just beginning, too. I mean, but, but it really is quite a coup how they get across the river. And I really think it's the product of, of a kind of maturation that you're seeing here, a, a planning. I mean, Truscott is a, is a superior division commander. I mean, the interesting thing about the Volturno, the thing I just kept when I was down there and I was looking at I looked at all the crossing points um, from the American ones to the British on their left flank as well. Uh, and one of the things that, that struck me was to look at it looks tougher. It looks a much tougher proposition than the Rapido does for the Texans in January mm. 44. Wow. Interesting. Would you not agree? I mean, you've got a bigger floodplain. Mm -hmm. You've got steeper, more significant hills in which you can have EPs, OPs immediately in front of you. I mean, I yeah, know you've true. got the casino massive, but you haven't got, you've got undulating ground in the Leary Valley rather than totally flat floodplain and the hills that are the feature of the northern banks of the Volturno. It's wider, significantly mm -hmm. wider. It is. Bigger river. So what is it about that works when the Rapido doesn't? Well, um, <laughs> I think we have better weather, maybe. That's one factor. Um, but... Yeah, but only just it stops raining on the day that they go over, but, but it has been raining. So the, yeah. the ground is very waterlogged, very difficult to maneuver in. I mean, obviously, it's been raining in January as well, but... but Well, maybe the level of German opposition would be another guess. I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and say, wow, the 7th is just so superior to the Texans, the no, 36th no, no, no. division. I'm not it's that. not I'm quite not that, that, but it's... Um, I suppose what I'm saying really is is the, I, the notion of crossing the Rapido after the success of the Volturno and the upper Volturno before Vinafro, mm -hmm. for example, on paper, it doesn't look any tougher. In fact, actually, it looks easier. So the orders for the Texans to go and cross it is not quite so outrageous as it subsequently became in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. This is something we do. We've got to cross these rivers and, and we generally do it at night. And yeah, we are trained for this and, and it's what you have to do. So no, it's nothing outrageous at all about the Rapido. I mean, that is that makes total sense. I think maybe the German reaction is is more is probably better coordinated in you know in yeah, January because, than it because, is in October. Yes, but, because also the Voltono is a kind of let's hold it for two days kind of thing and then retreat to the Bernhard line, the winter line, which is kind of further 
20 miles north. Yeah, right. Whereas the Rapido is on the Gustav line, which is the major line of defense. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure you're right. But but it, but it it on paper, it shouldn't have been I know. too outrageous a demand to try and get across it, I would I would. It said. shouldn't have been, yeah. And yet it is. Uh, the, the Rapido is. The Volturno's so no picnic, but yeah. It's, no. It's, yeah, it's but they do good. get across. And it's funny, isn't it, how yeah. the Volturno's kind of, sort of largely forgotten as an operation. Yeah, I know, because it went is, so well. <laughs> uh, at the time, it's, it's, it's massive. Yeah, well, this is slightly my point, is that if you want something to go, you know, to be written about decades later, you really need it to go badly. All the time. I know. Some incredible <laughs> hiccup. That's our interests. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But let's go back to Truscott, because you're right. He is a really, really interesting guy. In fact, actually, let's just take a break there, and then we'll get on to, get on to Truscott after that. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And we're talking about the 7th Infantry Regiment, the famed US uh, 7th Infantry Regiment, the only regiment that can trace combat history all the way back to the War of 1812 in a, in a line all the way through to today. Um, but we're talking about the 7th Infantry in Italy, particularly. And we were just talking about Truscott, who's not a 7th Infantry man, he's a 3rd Division commander and later 6th Corps commander at Anzio. But he's a pretty cool guy, isn't he? I mean, he, he's he's one of these kind of swashbuckling, stylish guys. He always wears a neckerchief and he wears cowboy boots and a bit like Patton, he has the revolvers at his side and all this kind of stuff and has a cool line in shades. But I mean, but but he's earned the right to look cool because he's he's a pretty good general, isn't he? He's an outstanding general. He's, he's a cavalryman to the core. So why not put him in charge of an infantry division, right? I mean, that's, uh, and yet- he becomes an infantryman's infantryman. I mean, it, he trains a third ID to a standard that 
is, um, you know, not always common in World War II and not always possible, I would say. Um, he is extraordinarily courageous. He has serious problems with his voice. He, you know, he's got these, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a heavy smoker and that doesn't help, but um, he's got, you know, vocal cord damage. He's, <laughs> he dresses. Oh, really? uh, yeah, exactly. He does. And so that's going to plague him at various times. And he, he's quite vulnerable to, to getting colds and all that. And, but he's, he's certainly a driver. He is the army's probably best polo player. And I mentioned that. To, to point out his love of horses and cavalry, of course, but also his competitive instincts. Um, right. Lucian Truscott felt that that polo was a kind of stand-in for war, um, huh. and that an officer's <laughs> true mean and metal could be determined on the polo field of how aggressive he would be and and whatnot. And so, you know, he's going to find, I think, a, a great partner in George Patton in Sicily. Um, and, and and certainly he gets along fine with Clark, you know, when, when he's under Fifth Army on Italy. Uh, but Lucian Truscott, I think, is arguably, you know, certainly among the best of the Army's division commanders and ultimately maybe the best of its corps commanders, too, once he takes over Sixth Corps, you know, later on during Anzio. Um, he's fascinating on a lot of levels, too. He, um, you know, he keeps a, he writes a good memoir. Um, yeah, what's it he, called? Armored Command or something? No, what's uh, that? Command um, Missions, I think. Command and Missions. It can be it. really hard to find sometimes, yeah, but it's no, totally worth it. it. It's yeah, Oh, it. it's terrific. And uh, and obviously, he keeps a good correspondence with his wife. I mean, he's 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 got uh, he's got soul, too, yeah. I think. He, so he where cares his deeply papers? for his soldiers. Where are his papers? Uh, his, where are his papers? They... Oh, they, they they might even be at Carlisle, aren't they? I, th- I think they may be at VM at um, uh, the Marshall Library at VMI. I, I could be okay. wrong about that, but I, I want to say that off the top of my head, there have been some some a couple of really good biographies of him, by, including one by Wilson Hefner, which was huh. part of my um, uh, American Military Experience series at the University of Press that I, I highly right. recommend. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean Truscott, he has turned the Third ID into uh, you know arguably the best division in the army at that point. Its main rival is the Big Red One. Yep. Um, and they're they're both great, but the Third ID is going to give you less drama off the line. Not that they're angels, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I mean they're they're and of course the rivalry can you know continues this day and and it's uh, it's fun. Uh, but I but I think that the Third ID in Italy is, is just doing things that. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is really the bellwether division, I would argue, for the whole Allied armies on some levels, uh, because this is all going to go through Anzio, too. Uh, but certainly uh, for, for Fifth Army, um, there is never any problem with the Third ID. And and why is that? You know, because it's it's no different than any other division in the sense of the horrifying casualties you're taking and feeding in people and all that. I think part of it, of course, is the leadership. But I, I would argue that part of it and this is self-serving, of course, but part of it is the the consciousness of history um, that that they really do, at least in the seventh, they really do when new people come say, you know, you're part of this tradition and this is who we are. So you at least have some identity as a replacement. I mean, that's the hard part. You're alone. It's cold. It's wet. You're you're worried about whether you're going to live till tomorrow. Um, uh-huh. And you may, you know, maybe you don't know these guys around you, but you can at least maybe have that kind of commonality on some levels. I really well, do think that's helpful. 
Yeah, I'm sure you are absolutely right. And it's interesting because the 34th Red Bulls, which is a National Guard division, that they're the first ones that go to Britain in January 1942. So the first mm-hmm. US division sent overseas. But even so, they are a National Guard one. So that you know that means for, for, for British listeners, they're basically territorials who put on a permanent footing for the war. They have a morale problem by beginning end of November, beginning of December 1943. Uh, and... They have a lot of desertions and they have a whole load of people that go to Naples and just don't come back. And Dot Ryder, who is the divisional commander, gets completely taken over the whole over the coals by by Clark, who says, Look, you know, I know you're a good commander. You're a great, you know, you have I've got your back. I think you're you're really good at what you do, but I can't have this in my divisions. You know, their their casualties are no worse than anybody else's, and no one else is doing this. So you yep. need to sort it out or else I will relieve you. It's yep. absolutely incredible. It is. There's, there's no messing. <laughs> no, there's no messing. And, and the Red Bills are really a terrific outfit yep. through the whole war. They're, again, they're another oh, of course, very they're much in Tunisia. unit. They're in Tunisia. Yep. They're in Tunisia. I mean, they're in there from the beginning, and they, they deal with this Italy nightmare all the way through to the end. The, the third idea at least gets out of it eventually, post-Anzio, and is in on yeah, the invasion yeah. of South France and all that. Um, you know, and of course the first armored division too, same kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, we are running into morale problems as a whole, of course, by the end of 43, we've chronicled this well when we've discussed it. Um, part of it too, you see in the venereal disease rates, which are yep. considerably high. Um, and you know, the third idea is no different than any other division in the sense of guys going to Naples and getting in trouble or whatever, but you don't necessarily see as much desertion or, or whatever. Um, uh, the casualty rates are appalling. The third ID takes the highest casualties of any U S army division in world war II. Um, and I think that's wow. because it's in so much fighting from North Africa all the way through to Birch's yep. garden at the end. Um, you know, but I do think it's, it's odd. It's real hard to get. It's, it's so slippery, Jim, because it's like, you know, there's something different about the seventh infantry and the third ID. And yet really other units are good too. And, and, but, and, and third has its share of problems, but somehow uh, it continues as this reliable unit. Um, I can't think of any time when it's really set into a major retreat or is defeated on any kind of major level. I mean, of course, we would, you know, Cisterna di Latorio in January 1944 is an abortive kind of thing, but I'm talking about break and run or completely defeat. Yeah, yeah. You just don't have that. Which other units do do. So, yeah, that's interesting. And and obviously a lot of that comes from Truscott, the Truscott trot and all that kind of stuff. But what about the commanders of the, the 7th Infantry? I mean, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Colonel Sherman is, uh, Harry Sherman at this point, is the, is the commander. Uh, the earlier commander, Macon, actually is, uh, has done very well, and he's going to be moved up in division command. He commands the 83rd Infantry Division huh. uh, yeah, in Normandy, and, and that's mm-hmm. uh, the See It Through Division, which is a really good outfit. Um, so yeah, Sherman is, is really the guy at this point. And, uh, he is, uh, he does so well at Volturno that Clark personally calls him and, and thanks him and talks about how thrilled he is with the, with the crossing and how the regiment did, um, eventually, and this is, this is later, um, you're going to have Wiley, a guy named Wiley Omahundro, uh, command the, the regiment, like in Anzio, uh, he's a character on, on a lot of levels, like a really a kind of an old school soldier, um, great sense of humor, but also very emotional on some levels. Um, and, and and after that, uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, Heinkes, who starts out as a battalion commander, um, you know, and I think he's in his, gosh, he's in his late 20s or early 30s, something like that. He ends up as the regimental commander by by the last stage of the war. And I would argue he's well, the most when he's dynamic. still in his early 30s. 
I think maybe he's in his early thirties. He's young. I've forgotten exactly, how, wow. but he's young. He's really young. Um, so he, he ends up as the regiment of the commander at the end of the war. And I, I think he's the most dynamic of them all. Um, so they kind of cycle through what are generally very effective commanders. And is um, Heinkes a pre-war regular? Yes, of course he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he uh, he's a West Pointer, but I think maybe class of 35 or 6. I mean, he's he's a young guy. Um, so he's, and then as I mentioned, he's eventually going to be a three-star general. He's going to, I think, be a corps commander in Vietnam. So he has a long army career, but I think this is the highlight of it. Um, once he takes over the regiment by the end of 44, there is a, a major dynamism. Um, and, and I should point out here, there's a, a there's at a, in Germany at a town called Utweiler, that's one time where the regiment gets routed, um, in part because of circumstances, really. But again, you, you see this kind of immediate rebuilding. Um, and, it, and, it, and by the time they're fighting in Nuremberg a few weeks later, they're really the leaders in terms of how they're fighting in tough urban combat that we tend to forget about because it's near the end of the war. But that was a very tough fight. Artweiler's, um, um is infamous, isn't it? Uh, this is, it is. This is a little Nazi who's running the town who kind of decides that no one's going to give up and no one's going to – like a tiny Hitler, isn't he? I mean, he, he's, he is. He's, he's a just, mini Hitler. And, and, of course, we had some bad luck, and I think there's a, in that there's an SS battalion that comes into play right at the point of vulnerability. You've got a fiasco with uh, mined and unmined roads and confusion over that. You've got some brand-new replacements. You know, you could see where this leads. But uh, um, in Italy – you know, you really don't have any circumstances like that. Uh, that uh, it's really kind of amazing that the unit holds up as well as it does. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and so they get across the Volturno in the middle of October, and then they're pushed up towards the the winter line, the Bernhard line, and very involved in all that fighting right up to the end of the year. This is some of the toughest fighting that the seventh experiences in World War Two. Basically, fighting in the mountains of Italy. The 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 ultimate um, objective is is uh, Dragoni. Uh, so that through that gap we were talking about in Monte La Defensa or what, however you pronounce it, I mean, Mount Mahulo, all of these terrible places where, I mean, fame, Ernie Pyle made famous, you know, with, with his, uh, I mean, he, he does his Captain Wasco story. It could have been any unit and the seventh is experiencing the same thing, basically fighting deep in the mountains of Italy. And this is caveman type fighting on some levels because, um, we have a squad here and this rocky outcropping and the Germans have one 15 yards away, um, you know, and, and we're out of ammo and we're fighting with rocks and we're fighting with bayonets and, and uh, you know, and what are we going to do with our wounded? And there's a there's a, um, a machine gunner at this point, a guy named Floyd Lindstrom, uh, who just d inflicts terrific damage on the Germans and refuses to leave his gun and so on and so on. He becomes uh, a Medal of Honor recipient. He Is survives he that. He survives. You know, he, he survives that, but he's killed later uh, because oh. he's such a courageous guy. Yeah, the 7th is going to have more Medal of Honor recipients than I can basically even count in World War II. And, uh, and a number of them in the Italian campaign, you know, for obvious reasons. So, yeah, I mean, the 7th basically... That, you know, in that October, November stretch that we're talking about um, is more or less destroyed as a combat effective regiment in the sense of manpower, not spirit and leadership, but manpower. Uh, and so eventually it and the division is going to have to be withdrawn from the line when you have this whole settling down, you know, near the end of the year. Uh, but it's basically just regirded for the Anzio and it's going to yep. be a huge part of the whole Anzio story. Yeah. So basically it has a month off and that's it. 
Yeah. About a month off. Yeah. And then you're thrown right back into it on January 22nd yep. um, with a and great they're, they're, deal of and hope. And they stay there, don't they? Right until the fall of Rome. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's really an interesting well, stretch. Breakout on the uh, whatever it is, the 26th of May. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that that is a really hardcore stretch for the regiment because you're not taken off the line at all, really. Um, part of it is a kind of meeting engagement that you're involved in. I alluded to it moments ago, Cisterno di Littorio, um, which is, okay, that's late January once the Allies are starting to finally push forward. Um, they're moving east, I guess it is, and then the Germans have decided they're going to attack west at that same time. Boom, you know, they, they meet, and famously the two Ranger battalions are cut off uh, and captured. So the 7th is part of that fight. Uh, but in a different way, they're closer to like the the Mussolini Canal, um, and so the, the 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 their fighting is like you know embankment to embankment, and and just sort of mixed very confusingly with the Germans who are attacking, who are probably just as frightened. And you have this kind of standoff engagement in which the majority of the regiment can kind of. Uh, retrograde and dig in right around the canal there, but they find there's no way we're getting through Cisterna. Um, the Germans are just too powerful there, and that's a microcosm of what's going on for the Allies as a whole. So then the next several months, you've got that kind of stalemate patrolling, and then you're all, also, by the way, in February, you're staving off those massive German attacks to try and overrun the beachhead. Um, but but I will say the heaviest fighting, uh, and of course you know this, but. Um, the heaviest fight is in May when you're finally starting to break out of there. So you go through Cisterna di Latorio again, and I would argue, I, I would be hard pressed to find any other spot in World War II that is better defended, like yard by yard, um, than that spot. The town is ruined. The uh, you can imagine the mines, the the sort of pillbox-like structures they've created out of buildings. Um, we are using uh, uh, sleds explosive laden sleds to try and get through their minefields. Uh, the casualty rates for the seventh infantry during operation diadem, you know, that push out through Cisterna um, are, are the highest that they, they experience in world war two for the most part. Yet it's successful, of course, but man does it cost them. Well, Cisterna is an absolute flea pit these days. I mean, you know, completely destroyed, totally rebuilt. Um, you know, it's, it, it hasn't got a lot of charm. It has to be said, but, but you do get a very good sense of, it's situation. You can go into those little, um, into the hills on the, is it Lapini Mountains, I think it is? It's I think on, it those is. Kind of, on the southern yeah. side. And you can just look down. You can just see the whole Anzio bridgehead, Natuno bridgehead. And you can see Cisterna and you can see Aprilia and all these places. And you can see why it was such a challenge because it's just flat, flat, flat. But the hills behind, it's, 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 like an, it's like an enlarged version of Salerno. You're just penned in. Yeah, it is like an enlarged version of Salerno. That's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, horrendous. And, and I, so I, I should point out this as long as we're talking about the seventh, this is really cool. Um, so there's going to be a video game based on the history of the seventh oh, called wow. burden of command. Oh, nice. Um, Luke Hughes of green tree games, which is an indie, um, came to me a number of years ago and said, you know, I want to create a game based on, on your book, on, on the experience of the seventh, like you're, God, how fantastic. you're basically, yeah, oh, it's an incredible concept. You're basically putting company command, and it's not a shoot 'em up kind of game. It's more like a decision making um, and and kind of discourse kind of game. What do you say to your people? What kind of attitude do you take? What kind of leadership tack? What kind of decisions do you make tactically? All these kinds of things that really impact the game. So it's the seventh history that'll be played out 
on all these various battlefields because there's rich fodder there. I mean, if you're interested in North Africa, there's that or Sicily or, you know, Italy or South France or Germany, whatever it be. It's the war, you know, so I think that's going to be really cool when. when yeah, that yeah, yeah, no, that does sound good. That does sound good. So anyway, so they, they, they are involved in the victory in Rome and then soon after in July, they're moved to moved out, chipped out because they're part of Dragoon. But I think what we should do, John, is I think we should continue this and do the 7th Infantry Regiment in Europe, in Northwest yeah, Europe, yep. another, on another podcast. Yeah, let's do that. A little that. bit down the line. But, but yep. and what a regiment. They're a very, very celebrated regiment. And it's, it's nice sometimes to kind of pick out key units, I think. Oh, it is. And for me, I mean, the 7th is personal on many levels. So I have to, to admit that up front. I, I'm really hardly unbiased, although I attempt to be, I guess, an historian. I mean, but at the same time, uh, you know, any way you look at it, the 7th just has a kind of remarkable history. What interests me about it is within this history, we can kind of see American history mm. on some levels. Um, so you're so- using them as a kind of, sort of light motif for the bigger picture. It, it kind of is, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm a military-oriented historian, but but I think in these books, you're getting a sense of the evolution of American history through the lens of the seventh, and and I really do think that that's kind of the value of this on some levels beyond like the tactical battle that we could discuss here and there. Uh, it's who's in the regiment, why are they there, um, what does this cost them? I mean, how does it set up? What are the policies and um, you know, and you see the seventh change from a, a typical segregated all white unit in World War II to ultimately integrated in the in the Korean War and thereafter. And uh, one of the things I argue in, in these books is that that's why the seventh also gets progressively better as we get closer to our own time. You're drawing from a larger talent base. And nowadays, too, by the way, you'd have gender integration, too, which would have been unthinkable in World War II. So we, the evolution, I think, is just kind of fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm also kind of um, I'm, I'm intrigued by Heintkiss. He sounds a, an amazing guy. Oh, he's fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, we could do a whole more. thing on Heintkiss alone because uh, well, maybe he's we a should. character. Maybe we should. Dude. Yeah. Anyway, enough for today. Um, <laughs> we should definitely, definitely continue this though. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, good to see you, John. Yeah, you too, Jim. It's, Until uh, to next you. time. Thanks everyone for listening. Cheerio for now. See ya.